friends, here we go. Great to have you here with me today again. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and so much more to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. This week's guest is Siana Earp, Australian plant-based yogi, health and wellness advocate, and free spirit. Siana hasn't shared a whole lot of her story before, so it was really interesting to hear about her past, her guiding principles, and life philosophy, how she handles social media and the 1.6 million followers she has, and what's really important to her. Siana and I had planned to record this exchange while we were in LA. However, it worked out better to do it in Bondi a few weeks later. So that's exactly what we did. Quick shout out to Brian Wendell, the creator of Forks Over Knives. If you haven't seen that documentary, definitely make sure you watch it. Probably the first major documentary on a plant-based diet and health benefits that I watched. And it's the first documentary I recommend people watch who are interested in learning more about this space. Brian and his partner had me over for dinner at their place, along with Robbie from Mastering Diabetes while I was in LA. Had a great time, lots of laughs, and the food was delicious. So thank you, Brian. Much appreciated. Before we jump into this episode, I quickly want to put my nutrition nerd cap on and chat to you guys about sulforaphane. Some of you may have heard of this incredibly healthful compound before. For others, let me explain what it is and how you can get it in your diet. So members of the cruciferous vegetable family, by that I mean broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, broccoli sprouts, etc., they contain a precursor to sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is a compound that researchers believe prevent healthy cells from becoming cancerous, anti-carcinogenic. Being precursors, it means that these molecules found in our broccoli and, and other cruciferous vegetables, they need to be activated in order for humans, us, to reap the rewards of these cancer-fighting properties. So, what does this activation rely on and why is it relevant to us? Through a complex sequence of events, the precursor molecules are activated by an enzyme called myrosinase and sulforaphane is produced. And sulforaphane is the most well-studied and potent of these anti-cancer molecules. Where this gets extremely interesting is during cooking, the enzyme myrosinase is deactivated, resulting in food with minimal to no sulforaphane. So if you're taking the broccoli out of your fridge, chopping it up and steaming it straight away, chances are you're missing out on your daily dose of sulforaphane. That's how I used to prepare my broccoli, so I'm assuming it's likely the same for you or for many of you. Now don't get me wrong. By steaming your broccoli, you're still getting a plethora of other nutrients. But why waste a precious opportunity to boost up the anti-cancer molecules in your body? 
Thankfully, there are a few tips and tricks that I use at home to help you maximize the amount of available sulforaphane from your cruciferous vegetables. So let me share these with you. Tip number one, raw. Enjoy some of your cruciferous vegetables like broccoli sprouts and cauliflower in their raw form and be sure to chew them because this triggers the enzyme myrosinase to activate the precursor into sulforaphane. Tip number two, chop. The enzyme myrosinase is essentially dormant unless the plant undergoes some damage. Chopping your cruciferous vegetables before cooking sends a signal to the enzyme myrosinase. Get to work, mate. And 40 minutes later, sulforaphane will have been produced. It's important to note that sulforaphane is heat stable, unlike the enzyme. So after 40 minutes, you can cook these foods and the sulforaphane will remain. Tip number three, add mustard seed powder, radishes, or wasabi. If you don't have 40 minutes to wait, to to chop your cruciferous vegetables and wait 40 minutes, I totally get that. Simply cook your cruciferous vegetables as you desire. And afterwards, add some mustard seed powder or some wasabi or radishes to them when serving. It turns out that the precursor is also heat stable. So it will still be in, in your cruciferous vegetables after you cook them. And mustard seed powder, radishes and wasabi are super rich in the enzyme myrosinase. So when you combine them after cooking, it will get to work and bring the sulforaphane to life. This little trick even works for frozen cruciferous vegetables because they are flash cooked and then frozen. The enzyme in frozen broccoli, for example, is deactivated. Cook them up, add mustard seed powder or wasabi or radishes afterwards and Bob's your uncle. Just one gram of mustard seed powder has been shown to increase the available sulforaphane in cooked cruciferous vegetables by over 400%. Broccoli sprouts contain the most sulforaphane precursor of all cruciferous vegetables. They offer the best bang for your buck. You can buy these at health food shops or buy the seeds directly and sprout them at home over two, three, four, five days. I'm going to put a blog up in the coming weeks to explain the the DIY sprouting process so you can make them at home. It's a super easy and cost-effective way to get more sulforaphane into your diet. Okay, friends, hope you learned something there and I didn't bore you too much. Time to get into this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation and and I think you will too. Hearing Sienna open wide and talk about her struggles, what she went through and how she overcame them is very inspiring. It's really easy to place people with large followings on a pedestal and to think they're bulletproof. But in reality, they're just the same as everyone else, human. Okay, let's do this. See you on the other side. All right, Siana, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day here in Bondi Beach. What uh, what brings you here to Sydney? Just came down to chat with you and catch up with some little sausage dogs. <laughs> yeah, we should probably perhaps paint a disclaimer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe a disclaimer, but also 
some of the listeners may have seen that we caught up in LA, mm-hmm. right, where we originally planned to record this conversation, but we had some background noise there and planes and whatnot. So we decided to to postpone and, and record it here in Bondi. But today we've actually got some different background background noise. <laughs> <laughs> Little dog dances. Yeah. So if you if you hear any They're tap dancing. Hear some tap dancing, that's Gnocchi and Giuseppe in the in the background. <laughs> but what we did do in LA, we uh where did we go? We had, was it we went to Sage mm-hmm. for lunch. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the the buffalo cauliflower wing. coconut calamari. Coconut calamari. Yeah. I didn't have those when we went there, but the food was still great. Yeah. Yeah. So what brought you to LA in the first place? What were you doing there? I can't even remember. That was like months ago now. My brain only works in like the current moment. Um, <laughs> I, I went, went over to Mexico for a sustainability kind of collaboration with a, a eco-friendly sustainable swimwear brand and a sustainable resort as well over in Mexico. And so that was phenomenal. And then when I was over there, I was like, why not head to LA? Speaking of you wearing your LA hat. Yeah, I am. I feel like I should have worn mine. <laughs> all, all about the Dodgers. Yeah. So you were in LA for like a month or something, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks. Cool. Yeah, three weeks maybe. Just doing yoga and hanging out in Venice Beach. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like a, a yogi hub over there. It's perfect. I got heaps of friends there, so it's it's really fun. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite places to hang out. So now you're back here in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. That's right. So is that is Newcastle where you grew up? Born and raised, baby. Born and raised. Yeah. And living there now. So what, what, what's a typical day look like for you and, and perhaps for the, particularly for the international listeners, maybe just explain where Newcastle is and sort of what it's known for, I guess. Okay. Well, Newcastle's about two hours north driving from Sydney. It's a little like beach town. So in summer, it's the perfect place to be. It's a, it's a little quieter than, well, definitely quieter than Bondi, but a lot quieter than most of the other coastal beach towns. Yeah. It's kind of up and coming, but no one who lives there wants it to. We kind of want to keep it our little secret. And yeah, I guess a day in the life. Is that what you asked? Yeah. What's a, what's a typical day look like for you now? I mean, we're going to, we'll go right into your whole backstory and we can talk about your upbringing, but now like, what is, what does that look like? It's so unpredictable and it changes most days, but I love structure in saying that. And so I really enjoy making a morning routine and trying to stick to that as often as I can, especially when I'm at home, but also when you travel, it gets a lot harder when you travel, as you would know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, wake up with the sun and then well, I go to bed really early. That's start one because you can't get up early if you haven't gone to bed, if you've gone to bed late, sorry. Yeah, so I get, wake up whatever time that is with the sunshine. So in summer, that's a little earlier and in winter, it's a couple of hours later or an hour and a half later. And then, yeah, I'll go for a run or a yoga class in the morning, bit of meditation, come home and I'll maybe get an acai bowl or whatever when I'm out. Love a good acai bowl. I think that's what you had at Sage. Oh, did you Did you have an acai bowl that day? I don't remember. Yeah. It was so long ago. You probably did. You have one like every day. I do. I just have one every day. <laughs> I spend a, a large fortune on acai bowls, not even a small fortune. And I, I don't even remember. What's the key to a, to a great acai bowl in your view? Oh, it's, it's a mix. It's a mix between, literally, it's a mix, <laughs> um, between the types of bananas that you use. So I think the, my favourite one is the ones in Hawaii because they use apple bananas and so they're heaps smaller but they're so creamy. Like they just, oh, they taste phenomenal. And so, so, so what are we talking, Sunrise sunrise Shack or? No, Haleiwa Bowls. Haleiwa Bowls. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, but no. You didn't go there, did you? I didn't go there. You got to, you've got to go back. I was back. recommended to by Andy. Yeah. Yeah. And love Andrea. So it's on my list. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, you've got to go back. 
you got to see all the boys grow up again. Yeah. So a bowl. Getting a bowl. So I'm really looking forward today to sharing your story and in particular learning about the things that you've overcome in your life and in general, the philosophies that you use to, to guide you through day-to-day life. So let's peel back the layers and, and go back to where things started. In the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> you ready to do that? Yeah, sure. So tell me, where, where were you born? Where'd you grow up in, in your sort of formative years of your life? And, and what was your, your family like? I grew up in Newcastle. And it was the best upbringing that anyone could have asked for. Like the most supportive, loving family, parents. I have two older brothers. They're always super protective in a good way and a bad way. Big bros. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll look out for you. They're the only ones who are allowed to rip on you. So like they can, they can rip off me all they like. But if someone else says the exact same thing, they're like, you can't say that. Mm. You're not a sister. A brother. <laughs> yeah. And then I like very sporty childhood and... I don't know, like just everything that could have gone right in a childhood did. Yeah, very thankful for that. But then as I was probably 15, I developed anxiety. Well, I already had anxiety and I struggled with that for most of my life. But then depression came and that was just horrible. It was all consuming like a big dark hole. If anyone's ever had depression, they know what I'm talking about. And if you don't have depression yourself, you've probably experienced someone close to you who has suffered through it. And it's just, it's horrible. I don't wish it upon anyone. And so I had a couple of inpatient stays at psychiatric hospitals and hospitals. I saw probably 20 different psychologists and psychiatrists, hypnotherapists, and eventually ended up in a like long-term specialist inpatient stay hospital in Sydney. And it was there that I kind of just, it sounds so cliche, but I literally just had a light bulb moment. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be able to remember what true happiness feels like. And I want to be able to actually laugh with my friends and be able to hang out with my friends rather than excluding myself from everything and isolating myself just down to, to no one. Like I didn't even accept the care and love of my own family. So, so it's a lot to go through it at, for anyone, but I mean, for, for a 15 year old girl, you mentioned then that you sort of, you, you had anxiety in mm-hmm. the lead up. Mm-hmm. What, what were the kind of things that were triggering that for you? It wasn't necessarily anything in particular that was triggering it. So I have a um, metabolic disorder, which is a, it's called cryptopyroluria. And rather than affecting my thyroid, like most metabolic disorders would, it affects my adrenal system. So I'm like crazy toxic in adrenaline and my body naturally wants to pump out a lot more than the average human. And that just really affects obviously like your anxiety. So everything as a kid, I was super wired about. Mum's a psychologist, so she picked up on it. She was like, something's not right. And yeah, like I was just so hard to handle, I guess, growing up because everything gave me anxiety, like going on a bus gave me anxiety, going to school gave me anxiety, opening the doors gave me anxiety, answering the phone gave me anxiety, swimming, carnivals, doing backflips, or just even it got so bad walking backwards was horrible. Yeah, they just kind of escalated and and a fear would become irrational and then it would kind of just continue kind of devouring. Was that something that you're, I mean, you must have been terribly fatigued by the end of the days, right? You know, constantly battling with that. Is this something that your parents at that stage were, were they worried about it? Yes and no. Like we all did so much sport that we were all going to be tired at the end of the day anyway. And I don't think it necessarily affected me like that. Like it does now. Like I, I definitely have 
and awake time. And then when I'm asleep, I'm so asleep and it hits me hard at like 4 p.m. every day. But other than that, it's, yeah, I don't think that was the main issue. I think it was definitely the way that I responded to stress. Yeah. And was it something that you openly spoke about with friends or, or parents sort of at that stage of your life? I didn't rec- or like recognize it at the time. We didn't have the diagnosis until I was 16. And so it was just kind of something that I struggled with. And I kind of just thought it was you. Yeah. Yeah. Or I thought it was just a problem with yeah. me. Not that I identified it as myself, but yeah, I was like, why am I always scared of things? Why am I always concerned and stressed? So how how did things sort of build up from, I guess, anxiety that you were dealing with here and there to the the inpatient stays? How did I deal with it? No, so like how did it how did it sort of build up and progress to get to a stage whereby you required inpatient help and 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 expert help with it? I guess it kind of crept up on me without me noticing. So I just began slowly isolating myself from certain friendships and then from my friend, like all friends and family, and then shutting myself in my room. I stopped doing all the sports that I'd done that used to make me really happy. Yeah, I just, I began becoming a completely different person and not to the point where I noticed it because I was around myself all the time, but my friends and family certainly did. And yeah, and then I ended up in hospital after I had a suicide attempt at 15. Gosh. And that was kind of the the start of the proper healing phase, I suppose. Was that a, a cry for help or do you, do you look back on that and it was like a genuine you were you wanted to commit suicide? A bit of both. I know that at the time it was genuine, but I think in retrospect it was genuine because I just I just wanted help. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of the time is what it is. It's it's that we've exhausted all other resources and we don't know how else to to heal ourselves and to feel happy again. So it's kind of like a last resort, which is yeah. really unfortunate. But so I mean, your parents must have been terribly worried for you at that stage. Yeah. And, and you said your your mum's a psychologist. Yes. Yeah. So her her in particular, having she's probably watching and, and understanding a lot of this has it unfolded, right? Yeah. Well, she was the only one who picked up on anything. Like, yeah, yeah she'd already kind of she was sleeping outside my door for like three or four months beforehand because she was concerned on a sleeping, on a, a, a beanbag of all things, yeah. the poor thing. So you, you, you went into this inpatient environment mm-hmm. and then, it was, then you went to another centre after that? Yeah. Talk, talk me through what that experience was in terms of your treatment and what you learned and, and how that facilitated healing. I guess it was just a necessary environment at the time. So it's, they're not like warm and fuzzy. They're not like pleasant places to be, but they are necessary sometimes um, for the safety of, of people and individuals. So um, I guess the friendships that I made in there, they wouldn't be the kind of typical friendships that you would make outside. And not that I wouldn't be friends with those people. It's just that it, like very different demographics, very different backgrounds, very different stories, especially about how they got in there. And so it was really interesting to just befriend those people and to understand their story and then you can kind of better analyze yourself as well and that's kind of one of the ways that I did recover because I looked around and I was like I I know that I can feel happy again and no one in here in there was happy we were all searching for it and we're on the way there but I knew that there was a fast track way so if anything it was actually inspiring yeah I mean it can certainly be such an isolating experience for a lot of people right Mm. and particularly for people if they don't talk about it and they just it's just all internal so I'm assuming in a environment like that where there is other people 
going through their own battles, it gives you a way to to not only just relate to them but realize that you're not you're not on your own. It's not just you. Yeah, and that's the same with like social media and real life now as well. It doesn't have to just be in an inpatient stay. I think like unfortunately mental health is on the rise and it affects so many young people, well, so many people, but especially young people nowadays and opening up about it, even just to a friend, not necessarily publicly on social media or anything like that can be so cathartic and healing. And so I think it's really important that anyone who has suffered through it and is now come like through it okay, it's not essential, it's, it's not necessary, but it's it's super helpful if they are open to to sharing their story with other people because it, it can help them as well. Yeah. I mean, having gone through this experience yourself and, and, and understanding it yourself firsthand, when you hear the statistics around young people suffering from mental health issues and not just young people, people in general, and, and, and it increasing in terms of its incidence, what do, you, what do you put that down to? I'm not sure. I don't know whether anyone has the answers because otherwise it would be a fact, I suppose. It's probably a mix between accessibility to social media from a young age and not having healthy habits either taught, learnt or created around how to use social media properly. But just in general, like no downtime as well. Stress is on the rise, which means that all kinds of disease are on on the rise. And yeah, I I don't even think there's a a proper answer to that yet. Yeah. Do you? well, I, I agree with everything that you just said then. And I think it's 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 clearly can't be pinpointed to one single thing. It's mm. it's multifactorial. But, yeah. You know, stress and 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 people I guess losing a, a bit of connection, a bit of real connection with people sometimes and even and, just with the universe. And and like no one goes outside and yeah, just stands on the beach anymore. Connection with the with nature and and their family and like you said, I think, and we'll talk about this, social media can be incredibly powerful and, and positive, which I know you're very strong about in, in your view and it can be used in such a, a beautiful way and, and bring people together. But also, you know, in the wrong hands of, of someone who's impressionable and, and hasn't learnt, you know, the potential downsides of social media and doesn't have any boundaries, you know, it can be incredibly taxing on that mind. Yeah, 100%. I think they should teach it in schools, like healthy social media use because it is it's unavoidable almost nowadays like for a kid not to have a phone and not to have an Instagram or a Facebook or anything like that or Snapchat it's almost unheard of yeah I agree and I mean now if kids are going through issues at school historically and, and it was obviously still a very bad thing but a lot of the time that issue would somewhat end when they left school mm. and now kids are dealing with it it's a continued issue because seven, yeah. they're still connected you know, all the way till the time that they go to sleep yeah. by this screen, they wake up, they're reconnected again on that screen, then they're at school and it's just, it's a perpetual cycle. Yeah. I'm so thankful that I, w- I was probably in like the last generation or the last kind of couple of years of people not having Instagram mm. and social media whilst being at school. I can't even imagine how, how like hard it must be. I mean, and we're just talking about mental health here, I think as well in terms of of just, I, I can't even imagine how much it would have distracted me from my actual study. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like no, no one's going to go to uni anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, certainly I agree with you that some form of education from an early age when, when social media is introduced is probably something that a lot of places are probably no doubt already looking at. Even just like shutting off. Like if people go on holidays now, they still take their phones and they're still kind of on emails. 
Whereas like, and not because they shouldn't or they can't put their phone away and not look at it. It's because if they do, they they literally don't know what to do. Mm. Like this. And that fear of missing out, like what's Yeah. But you're not really, what you're actually missing out on. Is the connection to yourself. Is the connection, which is the disconnection from that. Mm. So you can connect with yourself and be present with those. It's a cycle. Yeah. So tell me what, you went through this experience. Mm -hmm. Now, what what were the main sort of takeaway things that you learned about yourself in terms of what you could implement in your lifestyle to, to create a positive environment for a positive mood? I guess number one was recognizing and understanding my own strength and willpower. Once you, yeah, once you know who you are and what you stand for and your beliefs and your core values, then no one can even touch you because what they say and what they think doesn't affect you whatsoever because you're confident enough in, in yourself. So that was probably number one. And then two was just about like kindness, like knowing how you want to be treated and understanding the effect that your thoughts and not thoughts, but like actions and behaviors can have on other people as well. And even just like the things that you don't say or the things that you don't do can be just as, as harmful or as impactful. And that the, the, this- And just living life. This, what you're talking about, no doubt that that's not something that you can just learn overnight for a lot of those things. Are, no, it's a lot of st- the stuff that you hear and you get told by Pinterest inspirational quotes. Yeah. But until you live it, it's, it's hard to, to empathize with. But when you do, like when you understand it, regardless of the story that ended you up to like to learning it, you'll, you'll get it. Yeah. So tell me when you, when you came out of these environments with the, the psychiatrist and, and, and people sort of helping you during this, this really troublesome period of your life, for mm-hmm. lack of a better words, what was the next period of your life like? How long did it take you to, to learn what you're talking about now and to, to, I guess, somewhat change your mindset? It took a while. Like recovery was an instant, but my mentality was. So I guess once you have that as a baseline and as a foundation, it helped a lot. And obviously recovery is only something that you can actually probably achieve if it's something that you want yourself. So you can have all the help in the world and millions of dollars worth of psychiatric support, but it's not going to do anything unless you yourself want to heal. And you know that it's going to be so much better when you do. So it's a, it's a personal process and it's about committing to that, but obviously so worthwhile once, once you're back in the clear. Yeah. Is, is it still something that you, in terms of today, we talk about, you know, daily practices that you have now, but is it still something that you're very conscious of that you need to manage in your life? Not so much. No, I feel quite balanced now. And I think like I have for a while, I can still remember the way that it made me feel, but I can't, I, yeah, I can't like turn into that precisely, which is probably a really good thing. Yeah. But when other people talk about it um, or what they're going through, I can 100% empathize and I can like recall what, what that's like, which I think is important, but not attaching myself to it anymore is, is probably even more important. Yeah, sure. You spoke about empathizing. If you were able to go back and in time and sit down next to yourself when you were 15 years old and mm-hmm. going through that period of your life, what would you do or or say? I would hug myself first, definitely hug myself. Poor little 15-year-old me, <laughs> so naive. And I guess I would just wanted to know that, yeah, I would just tell her that the – 
power that I'm looking for and that I'm searching for is already, I already have it all. Everything that I'm seeking is definitely, like I already hold everything that I'm going to need and everything that I ever will need. And that's, I think, where the powerful thing is rather than seeking for happiness externally, just looking within and getting rid of the beliefs that you've acquired along the years. Because in order to learn anything, the first thing you need to do is to forget everything that you previously knew. And so I think that's, I'd just be like, just start over a blank slate, take a big breath, start meditating, do some yoga now. <laughs> See what, where it what, leads. what do you think your 15-year-old self would have said in response to that? Oh, uh, yeah, hippie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think a 15-year-old me would have been okay with the fact that there was a 24-year-old me sitting right next to her. Probably would have freaked out. What do you think? <laughs> you, you, you mentioned before one of your sort of one of the things that you learned was mm-hmm. not stressing so much what other people were thinking, right? Yeah. Was that something as a 15-year-old, were you were you actually dealing with with bullying or were, the, were, were some more things online that you were seeing and you were comparing yourself or what, what, was, what was your experience like with that? It was more so bullying, not like it could have been worse, certainly, but to be put down by and bullied by your best friends, I think hurt a lot because they were the people who were supposed to stick up for you and they were the people who were supposed to like have fun with you and whatnot and not be pulling fun at you mm. and singling you out. So I guess realizing later that those that was probably just like the friendship group and I'd probably just made a, a little not so great decision with the friends that I surrounded myself with and the people that I allowed to, to influence my life. But yeah, I obviously grew out of that. And then now knowing who I am, I don't feel any kind of peer pressure at all ever because I'm so certain in mm-hmm. in what I stand for, what I believe and what I do and don't want to do. And having the courage and the confidence to voice that is really liberating. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I think it's really important what you said then about, you know, choosing your friends. And that can be really hard when you're 15 years old. Oh, 100%. Because um, school feels like the whole world there. <laughs> like that, there's that bubble and that's it. But, I mean, essentially what you're saying is, you know, no, nobody deserves to be bullied. And a lot of the time when a bully is, is bullying someone, it's it's really more of a reflection of how they're, they're feeling, feeling internally. internally. Yeah. And, 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 and so they're vocalising. They're projecting. They're projecting. Their emotions. Exactly. Onto you. Um, which is a hard concept for a 15-year-old. To, it's hard for and, anyone to understand at the time because yeah. emotions take over so quickly and it's our impulse. It's like our innate behaviour to, like, react. Um, mostly defensively, but when you can just even just take five, not even five seconds, five milliseconds and just take a deep breath, you kind of instantly can recognize that, hey, this isn't attached to me. This isn't about me at all. And then that way you can also empathize with them Mm. and you don't hate them. If anything, you just have unconditional love for them. And that way by forgiving them, you can also forgive yourself by recognizing that the behaviors that you're recognizing in them affects you because it's the behaviors that you can do yourself or that you're capable of doing yourself. And that's a, it's a beautiful lesson, one that you can use then throughout your entire life. Literally your entire life. Uh, we're all faced with people that have differing opinions and want to project things on us. Yeah. And you used the word before, but there's nothing more liberating than when you can see it, you don't let it get to you and you just realize. It really is. It's so freeing. Yeah. Like I, I don't like drinking and so I haven't drunk in forever and a lot of my girlfriends even now still, they'll be like, hey, you're going to come out for a drink? And I'll be like, yeah, I'll come out, but I'll like, you know, I'll seek my herbal teas. And they'll be like, really? Like not even one drink? And I'm like, I just don't like it. And then I stayed at my best girlfriend's house last night in Sydney 
And she said to me, she was like, you know what, you you really did. Like once you decided who you were, you like haven't let anyone touch you, like touch you since or influence you since. And she said, it's really, it's actually really refreshing to see. And I was like, but everyone has that ability. Yeah, they do. And and you just, you're right. You need to really know yourself. You need to be mm. so sure of what you want and what makes you happy. And then you don't have that fear of missing out. But also in like within that, knowing who you are, means that you can also understand that change is the only constant. And so at any given moment, you can choose to be a completely different person, whether that be for good or bad. So like, just have faith in who you are and your intuition at the time. You'll always be where you're supposed to be. During this period of your life, when you were going through these mental battles and, and dealing with anxiety and dealing with bullying, what was your relationship with food like? I, gotta, I don't know. Like we've always had a pretty good like we, upbringing with food, we were always, we were very well set. Mum's a really good cook, um, very healthy cook as well. And so we always had an abundance of amazing food around the house. And mum would make like 12 servings, extra servings every night. And we'd have to like take it to school for all of our friends because they love mum's cooking too. So yeah, so we, we grew up with a very healthy approach to to food and very healthy food itself, very nourishing. And then I what, guess- What did that look like? What were the sort of- typical family meals that you would have? Uh, well, uh, like she has, she doesn't measure anything. So like recipe books, whenever in the case, she just had, she just had a really good, I guess, what they call it, like going off the spoon kind of approach to it, like just tasting. Winging it. Yeah, winging it <laughs> as the Aussies refer to it. Yeah, hardcore winging it. But like spaghetti bowls, she did a really good pumpkin risotto, really good pumpkin salad, um, roasts and like barbecues even. Like if dad would get on the barbie, he'd, he'd knock one up good. I don't know, like everything, just everything she cooked, she couldn't go wrong, every single meal. And so there was obviously a lot more versatility than that, but off the top of my head, I can't remember. Centro Bao was probably my favorite growing up. Centro Bao and Yeah, I love Centro Bao. Isn't it good? So, I mean, the reason I ask this is because a, a lot of people that are, are young and going through severe, you know, anxiety and depression often have troubles with their food, but it's, it's, yeah, well, like, it's like a control thing, yeah. I guess. Did that creep in at all for you? No, I um one of the things that I got bullied about because I was so sporty growing up was that I was musty than all the boys. And I like it doesn't seem that bad now, but at the time it, it really hurt me. And so the fact that I had like really broad shoulders and I was really strong, I didn't like. And so at one stage I did associate protein with muscle. And so I was like, oh, I shouldn't eat as much protein, which looking back, obviously terrible idea. <laughs> but yeah, so I just I just started thinking about what I was consuming rather than just consuming it to the point where I was satisfied and trusting my own intuition. But yeah, then I kind of learned about veganism and plant-based diets probably around 15, 16. And certain parts of that I didn't understand at first. So my like my initial introduction to, to plant-based eating wasn't as healthy as it could have been. And then once I figured it out, it was a bit of a journey, but yeah, like you're always still learning. And then, yeah, you develop a, well, I developed a, a spot that I could safely kind of fit into and and found myself thriving off that a lot and I haven't had any concerns with it. If I had, obviously I feel like you need to be able to respect your body and learn a healthy way to approach that. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah. I mean you can nobody nobody should ignore any no signals coming from their no. body. Yeah. Back then when you were 15, 16, there would have been a lot less resources as well around, you know, plant-based lifestyle and, and how to do that in a healthy manner. There's, you know, there's so much information online now. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? And, and what, I guess, initially, what, what inspired you to, to look at that dietary framework lifestyle and go, you know what, that looks like something that 
I would enjoy. I actually, I grew up, well, just like we were christened when we were younger, but we weren't religious. Like we didn't go to church or anything on weekends. And then in year five to year eight, I went to a Christian school and I kind of fell into Christianity at that point. And then at 15 or 14, I went to a public school and then kind of like rejected that blunt notion, I guess. And then um, so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not anything. And I guess I was really searching within myself at that time as well for a purpose um, or a reason for being. And a religion seemed like the place to start with that. And so I tried Christianity and it didn't seem like it was for me. And so I'd read a book that was about Buddhism. So overnight I was like, I'm a Buddhist. So I sat out on my deck for probably like 15 minutes and meditated and got eaten by mosquitoes alive. <laughs> but I, I like knew that part of meditating was that you were supposed to ignore those things. And so I like sat there and I didn't scratch any of them. And after 15 minutes, I was like, yep, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> and in the same book, I read about like ahimsa, nonviolence. Um, and I'd heard on social media, because Instagram was around at that time, about Caspiracy. And um, that's about the time when I heard about forks over knives and stuff as well. And so I went and watched a couple of documentaries. And then kind of once you see them, mm. especially as like a, a sensitive soul, you kind of can't can't unsee it. Yeah, yeah. And so then I was like, okay, this seems like the path. And so that's kind of how I initially found it. And then once I started following other people on social media who were in that kind of world, it just, it was the whole world. Like I, I was confused that people weren't <laughs> eating plants and stuff. So, or as many plants as, as they could be. So what's a, what's a sort of standard day of eating look like for you now? They're all different. I'm huge on listening to my body, like a hundred percent huge on that. Like I have sit like meals that I love. So breakfast would be probably Saibols. Love Saibols. Saibols, <laughs> breakfast, lunch, dinner, every snack in between if I could, if there was enough nutrients in them. And um, or avocado toast. I'm also celiac though, so gluten-free, obviously. And yeah, maybe if I feel like explosion, maybe some um, Vegemite, as in the gluten-free version, yeah, yeah. not regular Vegemite. It's actually made from like vegetables with the avocado would toast. you do like... Buddha bowls or, uh, you know, what would your typical yeah, sa- dinner sa- or lunch? Yes, yeah, salads and like big, big, big salad bowls or like sushi for lunch, like avocado rolls and stuff like that. People go off at me all the time. They're like, that's not sushi. What's the nori rolls? Is that right? Nori rolls, yep. yeah. Nori rolls. Sorry if you're a, a sushi connoisseur and I just, <laughs> I just said it wrong. And then like, yeah, curries, pastas. But you eat a lot of food, veggies. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to if you're active. Yeah. You have to. Absolutely. What, what are you, where do you sit? It's quite topical at the moment on sort of intuitively eating and sticking to as, you know, as much whole foods and eating in abundance versus calorie counting and things like that. I've never counted calories. I can happily say that maths is not my forte and I don't see the point in eating via numbers. Mm-hmm. Eat for fulfillment, for fuel, eat for the joy of spending time with people and those around you and creating something. So if you're cooking it yourself, and yeah, like n- eating through numbers makes no sense to me. It never has and it never will. I, a lot of my girlfriends in high school went through a phase of starting to cap calories and I just looked at them and I was like, that makes no sense. Mm. Like just. Yeah, I think, you know, when, when I think about it, right, a lot of the, the calorie counting that I see now is kind of a way for people to to create a diet which allows them to still eat a lot of junk food that's not full of nutrients. It's like. That's true. That's and, a good point. And and I think about it, I'm like, our ancestors, they- They didn't have junk food at all. They did, so, they, so they didn't have junk food. And what that meant was they didn't sit around counting their calories all day just in order to fit the refined packaged junk food into their That's diet. That's what it is, isn't it? Which is a really 
unnatural process of, of thinking about things. And, and I think we also need to be sensitive to the fact that some people are, are, are terribly overweight and really want to lose weight. Mm. And, and in some cases for someone, you know, calorie counting can work, but the research and the science sort of shows that obsessing over calories doesn't translate to long-term lifestyle changes. It's yeah. very hard to sustain that, right? Yeah. So that's where I'm kind of... Yeah, no, I think you're right. It has its place. But I think ideally everyone wants to be able to not have to worry about it, right? Like I, th- I think it, the, it comes down to priorities, right? And I think the first one should be selecting really nourishing, healthy food. Wholesome foods. Wholesome yeah. foods. And the more of that that you eat, you're... Eating less from a packet, more from the earth. You can't really go wrong. And your hunger radar, your natural hunger radar, it becomes more fine-tuned. A lot of people have a trouble with that though. Like I, I listen to my body and I'll preach that, but so many people connect with me and they say, I, like, I love what you're talking about, but I, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to tune in with myself. And it's because they've been shaped, like behaviorally shaped over the years through media, through friends, through family, through just like beliefs and stuff like that. Like even kids at a dinner table, they won't want to finish all their meal and they'll leave certain parts. And if you look at it, it's probably because they don't need that nutrient at the time. But then a parent will say, no, like you can't leave the dinner table until you finish your dinner. Mm. And that kind of, it Which, can create bad behaviors. I mean, there's it. multiple multiple facets of that, right? So mm. what you're sort of talking about is is mindful mindfulness. So while you're eating and listening to your body and and feeling if you're full, right? And and a lot of these blue zones, right? One of the really not even full, satisfied. Satisfied, like right? Like 10, 20% before full. That's what I was going to say. So that's a lot where of you want to get zones, you want to get 80, 90% satisfied. And that's exactly what they do. They yeah. they they finish their meal at about 80% full. Who's, who's they? Who's these this? are the blue zones, right? Which are which are zones in the world where people exhibit great longevity. They're living really long lives. Oh, I, mean, I think they, I watched a documentary about this. Yeah, you probably one have. in Japan. Yeah, there's one. There's in like Japan. a was it a Jamie Oliver thing? I don't know if he's oh. worked it into his content, but a lot of people talk about them. And I mean, they do a number of other things in their life, but one of the things that they do, they have a very either completely or predominantly plant based whole food lifestyle diet. Yeah. They're, they're not counting calories. And one of the really interesting things with their meals is that they eat until about 80% full. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I think that's really important. And then I think the other factor of that is if you want to be really in tune with your body, you you really need to get rid of as much as you can or all of them, the foods that food scientists are creating in these packaged foods. Mm-hmm. They're created by food scientists, right? And profits with profits in mind to get customers addicted to them, you know, and the the sweetness in nature in the acai bowl can't compete with the sweetness that they can artificially produce. I don't know. I like acai bowls. <laughs> well, no. So that- w- But to w- kids and w- stuff, when you, yeah. When you change your diet, right, like you have, you look to yeah, acai bowls or blueberries like a, a Mars bar. Yeah. So that's- Frozen grapes. That's where it's at. You're speaking my language. So what <laughs> what you're describing right now is, you know, a lot of the lures of these calorie counting diets is you don't need to give up your miles by, you don't need to give up this, but people are missing this really important piece of the puzzle is that you're Wouldn't not you going to- you better if you did? You're yeah. not going to be missing out on those because you're not going to crave them anymore. That's, yeah. And like I have, I have one, um, like one of my brothers and my friends, he's so funny, but he's like huge on- tacos and like Mexican food and stuff. So he's like not plant-based, 
by any means, loves cheese. And then for 12 weeks, he went on like a health kick and he was like, no alcohol, no, he went like vegan for 12 weeks. And then after it, he was like, okay, bring me back the cheese. And he actually got like sick from eating dairy because his body wasn't used to it. And he was like, it doesn't taste right anymore. Like it's not the same. You get really rapid changes in your in your gut bacteria and you know, science shows that the more plants, whether you're 100% plant-based or not, the more diversity and abundance in your diet, generally speaking, the greater diversity in your gut bacteria. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, I don't think that anyone has to be vegan or even call themselves vegan or plant-based. Like, I think as long as you're doing the best that you can and you're eating as much whole foods as possible, you're winning. Exactly. It's not about the label. No, not at all. And people are on about a the way you feel. People are on a different journey and- that, you know, you need to do what can work in your lifestyle, mm. what works for you, what works for your family, small steps, any step from a diet full of animal foods and processed food towards a diet that has less animal foods and processed food and more whole yeah. plants. Yeah, exactly. You're doing good. Yeah. Amen. I thought that was satisfying. <laughs> One thing I saw you recently post about was permaculture. Yes. Right? Is that sort of, I guess, circular ecosystem, something that you would like to to one day be able to sort of introduce into your life in terms of where you live? Yes, 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 and yes. Like I could not think of anything more. I would love to eventually have, um, I want to live half in Australia and half in Hawaii, so like six months or well, 365 days of summer, I suppose, year-round summer. I'm a summer baby. And yeah, with properties that have large backyards so that I can have a bunch of dogs and like family running around and stuff like that all the time, but also to have a big garden that I can grow all my own produce in, like an abundance of fruit and vegetables. And then you are eating not only a whole bunch of different fruits and veg and from the earth, but you're eating them like they're, they're so raw and they cannot be more alive that way. And the, the cell effects that that has on your body it's phenomenal. Absolutely. And you're getting all of that goodness without the chemicals. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like the, I'm sure there's ways to get it without the chemicals now, but even when you go to a farmer's market and you talk to the, the farmers about where the produce comes from, you're still, you're still never really sure. It's getting tougher. Mm, tougher and more expensive. It's ridiculous. So food and, and nutrition, I guess, aside, what are other parts of your life that you place great importance on in terms of nourishing your body, mind, and soul? Kindness, friendliness, trust, honesty, and yoga. Yoga. Nature. Nature's a big one. And travel, I guess, as well. Yeah. But travel is more of a state of mind, I guess. You don't need to necessarily go into country to be able to travel. It's more about being open-minded and open-hearted to experiences and different cultures and people and learning just knowledge in general, just being open to that. What are some of your favorite places that you've traveled to? Oh, all the hot places, all the hot places of the blue water <laughs> and the white beaches, Hawaii, the Kauai specifically. I love Kauai. Jurassic Park. Yeah. The Jurassic Park was filmed there. Yeah. Uh, well, part of it, not the whole thing. And Bahamas, Cook Islands, Solomon Islands, Maldives are amazing. There's not a lot to do, but anywhere where you can snorkel. I just got off a, a seven-day boat trip in the Komodo Islands and it was crazy good. Like it was oh, just being on the water 
And then rather than sleeping in the bunks at night, I'd go up and I'd sleep on top of the boat under the moon. And the, for the first three nights, it was a full moon. Mm. And the moon, I'm a Scorpio. And the first two nights, the sec, the last two nights of the full moon, the moon was in Scorpio. And I was just like, it was, it felt like the moon was just for me. It was so good. Yeah. I saw your photos. It looked pretty oh, magical. Just connecting with nature like that. Like we were just in the water all day, every day. Such healthy food made like on the spot right there before us. Oh, just everyone needs to do that. We went swimming with manta rays. Like I was like belly to belly with manta rays. Mm. You can't get any better. Unbelievable. Oh, they're magical. You mentioned yoga. And I think a lot of people who follow you online would know would, that I like yoga. Would know, to, know that you have a passion for yoga. <laughs> so when did when did that start? Is this something that you were doing as a young kid and, and teenager? Or what was your inspiration behind, I guess, your first yoga move? Well, like I said, I grew up doing gymnastics. So it's an obvious translation, but I didn't really pick up on yoga until much later in life. And although there's similar, like very high similarities between the two, there's a lot that doesn't convert over. And that's the kind of, that's the part of yoga that I actually found really enjoyable, the challenging myself part um, and stretching my limits and seeing what I could and couldn't do. And if I couldn't do something, seeing if I could figure out a way that I could do it eventually in a day, a week, a year, a month, however long. Was this sort of around the same time as starting your social media account that you were exploring yoga and learning these different moves? Yeah, it kind of went hand in hand. Social media, well, Instagram specifically kind of started around the same time that I was up in Queensland at uni and picked up on yoga because I saw a couple of photos of people doing yoga poses. And I was like, I reckon I might be able to do that with my background in gymnastics. And some of them I could, some of them I couldn't. And I would go down to the beach early in the morning. Sunrise is so early in, in Queensland, especially in summer. So I was down at the beach at like four o'clock every morning uh, waiting for the sun to rise and I would take yoga photos on the beach, self-timed yoga photos. Okay. What would you do? Set the camera up on like a lean it up on something or a tripod or That's something? That's what I do now. I just take my phone with me and lean it up against like the sand or a rock yeah. or a tree or anything that I can find. But um, I used to take the the tripod and my actual DSLR to, to the beach with me. Okay. Proper. Yeah, 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 and now it's more like I'll I'll go and actually do yoga at the beach yeah, and just yeah. put up my phone. Well, up I mean, yeah, the the phone cameras improved a lot since then, right? It's all you need, really. Like people are like, what camera do you use? And I'm like, the best camera you can have is what you got on you. Mm. Makes it easier, yeah, than lugging around the SLR everywhere. Yeah, they can be handy in certain circumstances. Yeah, if you're wanting to like blow it up to yeah. the size of a wall. What was? Can you remember what your first yoga move was, or perhaps one that was challenging, and you're like, I just really need to to nail this. I still have some that I can't do that I would love to do, like even ones from back then. But yeah, I think I think the the first ones that I kind of really got into were the handstands, the inversions, because I knew that I could do handstands, and I liked being able to do the things. <laughs> so I'd give those a, give those a wham, and if I could, I'd take it to the next level. Okay. Try one that I couldn't do. When in in Venice, I showed you one of my little moves. What what would you call that? A headstand. It was a headstand. Yeah. Okay. Maybe later today you can show me. Were your hands aggression. like this, or were your hands like this? They were in. In like yeah, this. Yeah, and like that. Headstand. Okay. So next progression is is tripod headstand. Okay. With your hands face sides. All right. We'll have to do a little tutorial today, and I'll keep everyone posted with my progress. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you started posting these single poses onto Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I really want to I really, really want to dig into social media and how it how it is a part of your life, how you use it. And and also to understand, I mean you have one 
point something, nearly 2 million followers, what that feels like. And, you know, it feels like to have so many people who are inspired by you and, and are looking for guidance and just to, to get a feel, I guess, mentally what that feels like for you. So let's, let's go from the start though. When you started posting these yoga poses, mm-hmm. what was the initial reactions and engagement that you were getting from, from other people online? Well, when I initially started posting them, I had no idea about what yoga actually was. I knew of what the poses look like and I knew how to strike them some of the time. There was a huge disconnect between what yoga actually is and what I thought yoga was and what I thought I was doing at the time. And I've since been able to distinguish between the two since doing my teacher training. And so now yoga means so much more to me than it did then, but that's where it started. That's how it started to progress. And so that was just, you know, posting the poses, right? Yeah. And were people engaging that with that though and being inspired by these poses that you were you were sharing? Yeah, they were almost being too inspired. I mean, I would make sure that there were beautiful pictures. I was studying photojournalism at university. And so I kind of like mixing the two mm. together and seeing if I could take a pretty photo of the yoga pose that I was doing. <laughs> so too inspired, do you by that do you mean that you because you you knew that you weren't actually Uh, practicing yoga? Well, I I knew nothing about yoga. And then within a short time, I had a reputation for being a yogi. And I think alongside with that came people assuming that I knew everything about yoga Mm. and that I was like a full-on, almost monk-style yogi. (laughs) So Um, were you getting invited to do... Yeah, to teach a lot of classes and stuff. And I had no idea, like I'd never even put two moves together into a sequence, let alone a whole flow. And so when I went to my teacher training and learned what it actually was, it opened up a whole new door and I loved it even more. But up until that point, yeah, I felt like I was, um, what's that thing called where you've got imposter syndrome, Mm. where you feel like like someone's going to call you out and be like, you don't actually know what you're doing. Because I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing and people just assumed that I did. And I guess what was your, when you were uploading that content at the start, what was your underlying purpose though? What were you using Instagram for? Self-expression and venting. Yeah, definitely ventilation. Yeah. That's that's how I express my emotions and my thoughts. So I would write things on there as well, like you know, longer captions, just emotional captions, I suppose. Being really open and honest, I've always been really open and vulnerable on my social media. And thankfully that's been warmly mm. welcomed and encouraged rather than rejected. Yeah, that's that's how I actually began to kind of heal from, well, that helped me heal. That wasn't how I began to heal, but that's it definitely assisted me in healing from depression and anxiety because I could just use it as a space to to talk openly. And it's incredible to hear to hear that because like we spoke about at the start, social media can obviously be incredibly powerful and positive. But it yeah. can also be poisonous. Yeah. So let's let's just talk through that, right? So you've you've had this incredibly positive experience in terms of it helping you vent and with your healing have you ever had any sort of toxic relationship with with social media where perhaps it's it's gotten the better of you in terms of how you're using your time and and also how you're letting it affect you what you're seeing online what people are writing and things like that i think i picked up on it right before it was at the point where it could have been toxic but i can see how that does have it can have a potentially toxic effect on a lot of people, depending on how you choose to use it. I was at the point where I was just getting, this is a couple of years ago, where I was only doing things for the gram. You know how people are like, do it for the gram. I was 
literally only going to the beach in the morning to take these photos for Instagram. And it took the joy out of it. And I was only going to cafes to have lunch with friends and stuff like that so that we could get like the Instagram shot together. And it took the the purpose, I guess, out of just general interactions. And so Instagram, what it's meant to be is instant gram, like just gramming what you're doing turned out to be complete choreographic gram mm. and only doing things for the photo, I suppose. Very curated. Yeah. And so I found myself on trips or just everyday life taking photos or filming stuff. And I was confused because I was literally looking at the things that I was doing just through the screen. And it felt there was a huge disconnect between myself and my my own reality even. And so I kind of took a step back from social media at that point just for, I don't, I, I don't remember how long it was. I think it was probably only a couple of weeks. And then I came back to it, whole new mindset. Yeah. Like I made sure that I knew that numbers and social media was just something that I did because I remembered why I started it to begin with. And that was as a personal project. It was for pleasure. It was for expression. It was for art and creativity. Mm. And that's once I remembered that and came back to it. And I realized that the people who follow you, they don't want to follow you because you're Instagram famous or whatever. They literally just want to follow you to see what you're up to and to be inspired because that's that's how I use it. I only follow the people that I'm inspired by and that I can learn something from or that they're they're teaching me new things every day. And I love that. I love that. And also just to connect with other people. Like that's ultimately what it was supposed to be, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's kind of full circle. And I think a lot of a lot of accounts and influencers out there have done a full circle where they're realizing now that people really, really thrive on authenticity. Yeah. And they can feel authenticity. And when you're sharing in the moment, you're actually you are giving your authentic self more than, you know, a curated version. Well, I mean, if you think about your favorite people to, to keep up with, they're all the ones who are just out there and real and raw, aren't they? Yeah. They're all the ones who are like, yeah, I just woke up and I've got bed hair and I've got drool dripping down my face and, yeah, I maybe peed the bed last night. <laughs> so what? Yeah. I mean, it's relatable. Yeah. And it's refreshing. And I think it's healthy. You talk then about who you follow and you're following people who can, who can guide you. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I did. And, and I called out anyone who wasn't. And that's a, just such a, a great thing to look at in your life is who you're following because essentially that's the environment that you're creating for yourself. That's what you're seeing. It's, that's your decision who you follow. Yeah. And when you curate that and you set that up from people who are truly adding value, you're more likely to use social media and see positivity. Yeah. Well, everyone's talking about like Marie Kondo. If it doesn't, what is it? You hold an object and if it doesn't bring you joy, if it doesn't spark joy, then you get rid of it. I haven't heard this. You've got to do the same thing with like a digital detox. You've got to go through everyone that you follow and go, does their account bring me joy? Because social media and reality are completely different things. So even if like your best friend, if what they're posting online isn't empowering you or uplifting or inspiring you or motivating you, then you can just be their friend in reality. Like it's not a huge deal. I mean, now, fortunately, you don't even have to unfollow. You can just click on their profile and click mute. And that means that. I didn't even know that. That means that. Oh, you can do it on the slide. Yeah, just so that, you know, just so that. Because like it's exactly exactly right. I've got a lot of friends on social media who people who I know in real life, and I know that the content what they're talking about on daily on on their profile, it's uh, you know it can be to do with their business or, or things like that, and not necessarily related to you, related to me, yeah. and and related to my personal relationship with them. So it's very easy. So you don't have to unfollow them yeah. because then people are like, oh, why is he unfollowing me? You can just yeah. go there mute. 
changes what you see every but day. But just look at it as an environment. Like the environment that surrounds you is what dictates most of who you are. And so it, it dictates your personality and your personality is your personal reality. And so look around at the people that you're surrounding yourself with and that you're literally allowing your eyeballs to stare at all day long because most of us are on our phones, not 24 seven, thankfully, but, or hopefully, mm. but quite frequently and more often than we even recognize at the time. So have a look at those people and what environment you're creating for yourself and see if you can make it a happier, more positive one. Cause I, like I, without a doubt, I promise you that it will be so much better if you, if you just refresh it and 100%. make a clean slate you know, follow less people, spend less time on it. And you really, you're not missing out on anything. You're going to, you're only going to gain. Yeah. Quality over quantity. Absolutely. You mentioned then that hopefully we're not spending 24 seven on our phone, right? How do you manage your time, your personal time, your, the time that you put into your work and the time that you're on social media to prevent, I guess, it, it getting the better of you? I just enjoy real life so much now. So I guess implementing a really strong, solid morning routine is a big part of that and giving myself time in the morning. If you don't have time in the morning, you can do it any time of the day that you do get and just giving yourself that time for purely you, for not touching your phone, walking around, looking up at the the sky, listening to birds, connecting with actual nature, taking your shoes off, walking on the beach or the, the grass or even in the mud. Why not? Get a bit dirty. And yeah, that's, that's the most important thing. And I think you'll find that once you do that, you'll start to begin to notice shifts in your mentality um, and your emotions and your mood just from doing something so simple. And when you, you bring awareness to that and shed light on it, it's hard to ignore. And so once you know that it feels good to not be on your phone 24 seven, you'll begin to appreciate the time when you're not. And so you start to value the time when you're not and therefore give yourself more time away from screens. But it is a big part of what I do. It's a big part of what most of us do nowadays. And yeah, just knowing that you can create the balance there for yourself. It's not going to happen automatically. You do have to give yourself distinct barriers, but then respecting those barriers. It's hard, but it's also powerful. Yeah. I mean, having those boundaries is important. And that, like for me, I know that one of the, the main things that I set for myself is if I'm going to use it and I'm going to be on there, I don't want to just be scrolling, you know, mindlessly, you know, I don't want to be burning time where I'm scrolling, not, not just for the fact of burning time, but it's what you could be doing instead of. Exactly. And, you know, those 10 or 15 minutes quickly add up, you know, you do, you do 15, 20 minutes a day of just absolutely mindless drone-like scrolling and over a week that's 140 minutes. But if that's something that you still want to be able to do, that's fine. But I would say, or I would recommend like designate certain periods throughout the day for that. Um, And then when you do use your phone, if you need to set an alarm on it for like, let's say five, 10 minutes, and that time will come up super quick. You'll be like, what already? And then that's, that's when you know, okay, I need to put it away. strategy. Yeah. Or there's like, there's apps for it as well. I'm pretty sure. And like screen time on your phone, it can tell you like how long you've been looking at a screen in the day. And that's kind of shocking when you first look at it. You're like, whoa, <laughs> didn't realize it was that bad. But yeah, becoming mindful of it is the first step into making positive changes. But even just things like setting boundaries around not using it at meal times, So being mindful when you eat. Um, and that's a really good way to get like to connect with your body and listen to your body more as well. Or especially around friends. Like if you're at a dinner table or a, even like at a restaurant, a cafe, anything, don't use your phone. Don't even have it there with you. Or if you have it, have it face down on the table next to you. I have a friend who 
when they all go out for group dinners, they all put their phones in the middle of the table downright and whoever picks it up, their phone up first has to shout everyone dinner. Mm, I've played that game. Yeah. Phone stack. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's a good game. But if everyone's really good at it, you could be there for days. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you the idea I think is if no one t- if no one grabs it, mm. you split the bill, right? Oh, yeah. That makes sense. So if no one grabs it, you split the bill. Yeah. But if someone throughout the dinner decides that they need to check something on their phone, then they pay the bill. Yeah. It's pretty fair to me. It does. It, it, it really, really does. makes for a much better dinner. And yeah. that's like if you're on social media for connection, look around you. That's mm. so much better connection. Well said. Let's jump into some bigger picture things. Ooh, I feel like we've up. covered a lot of your early life and, and now your time on social media. And I know that you quite often you post writing. You mentioned before you like to write and, and you post writing that is about big picture things, big picture ideas. It shows that you're, you're a deep thinker. So some of these topics I think you will have explored before and I'm, I'm interested to see okay. if you have and what you think about them. What are the most important things to Sienna in your life? Mm, family, time. I value time a lot within the understanding that it's a construct. It doesn't actually technically exist. And connection. Connection is a big one. Connection to yourself, connection to your friends and your family, the people around you, connection to strangers, connection to the universe is a huge one. And I think within connection is is the basis of purpose for most human beings. I think everyone just kind of wants to feel connected and understood. And within that, there's there's love and happiness and friendship. And what's what is that your purpose? In particular, I guess when when someone jumps over, right, onto your social media and they're scrolling, what effect do you want to have on them? How do you want how do you want to make them feel or what do you want them to to learn or be inspired by? I think my purpose on in this life is just to be, is just to exist unapologetically and learn and explore the whole way along that. And I think that's everyone's, but ultimately like I don't have the right to say what everyone's purpose is. That's up to them. But when someone pops onto my page, I guess I want them to just feel warm, happy, understood. I want it to be a safe place for them to be able to explore who they are. I don't want to inspire them. I want to help them to inspire themselves and to learn from themselves. So I guess I just kind of want to stand as a, a big sister kind of like role model, a big sister or a big son so I can warm people and make them a little bit happier. But whilst teaching them or helping them teach themselves ways to complete, fulfill, satisfy themselves whilst making them happier, healthier, more vibrant and energized. So it's a great way of looking at it because it's not a lot of the time the relationship on social media can can be misconstrued as the role model. The role model and people wanting to emulate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's not about em- emulating one person in particular because no. the idea is that you will find who your authentic self is. Dr. Seuss, today yeah. you are you, it's truer than true. There's no one alive who's you than you. Exactly. And and that's a big one because, you know, I know myself quite often you can, you can there's a difference between looking to someone for information that can help you learn more about yourself yeah. than looking at someone because you want to be them. Well, you're your biggest teacher. And I say that as a yoga teacher, I rock up to classes and I'll, I'll often tell them, I'm like, I just want to let you guys know that I'm not your teacher. You're your teacher. I'm here giving suggestions and you as your own teacher need to take those 
and see whether or not it's for you and whether it's right for you at this time. It's an empowering way yeah. to, to do it. If you, weren't, if you weren't doing this, you weren't creating content online and representing brands and teaching yoga and flying around the world, gallivanting around the world, doing yoga, eating acai bowls, <laughs> what could you see yourself doing instead? I don't know. That's a really good question. Like I don't know what even the rest of this afternoon has got in store for me. I think that's part of the beauty of life is yoga poses. Well, we definitely have one or two yoga poses booked in. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yoga poses and uh, probably something to do with psychology. I'm fascinated by the human brain. I think I probably, I've always been, well, not always, but yeah, kind of always been a big fan of words, not necessarily reading. That's kind of been something that I've, I've learnt to enjoy more over the years to give myself some more downtime and space to to sit back, relax, and actually take stuff in. But writing, I've always found very cathartic and mm. healing to the soul. So I think I probably still would have been writing a fair bit. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you, you, you speak very openly about your experience with depression. Is that something that you see as part of your future in terms of helping younger people who are experiencing that and do you ever think about that you know you, you share it online do you sort of do you do that in a way to to help others that may find themselves in that position that's why i'm able like that's why i talk about it yes because one people ask and i'm an open book i'm okay to answer it's not something that i still struggle with so i am capable of answering mm. without emotionally attaching to it but yeah definitely for other people like if i could even just help one other person I'm set. Like I can mic drop. I'm done. Um, so to well, you're certainly doing that. To have a platform that is capable of potentially helping millions. That's I can't even comprehend that. So it's yeah. I don't think anyone or not many people on social media who do the kind of things that you and I do do it for themselves. I think everyone mm-hmm. in our kind of industry does it for the effect that they can see and the help that they have on other people. Yeah, because that's I, really powerful. And and ultimately that effect on that you can impart on someone else is the greatest thing that you can do for yourself. Yeah. It's uplifting in itself. Yeah. Well, that's like secret, just (laughs) secrets out. When I first started recovering and using social media to vent, I managed to help other people before I could help myself. So for a while, I used to think of myself as the girl who could help everyone but herself because I could say all these things and people would be like, that's really inspiring, but it's actually what I needed to hear at the time as well. And so to have them be able to resonate, it was them that helped me. Yeah. So, yeah, as soon as you open up, it's it's a whole new world, like Ariel, a whole new world. <laughs> you mentioned open book before, and you definitely are an open book. Um, so thank you for sharing so openly. Is there anything perhaps that people don't know about you that we haven't explored today? Any any really interesting Why is this a question so many people ask? <laughs> every time someone asks it to me, I, I Well, it's run okay. Out of if one. you don't have if you don't have an answer, it truly speaks to the fact that you are an open book. But I don't know if I do have an answer. I have a really quirky answer that comes to mind. I have no idea why. Well, let's go there. Quirky. Quirky or not, let's go there. My favorite bathroom that I've ever used was not a bathroom at all. It was in the middle of Africa and it was like this lush green ferns. I'd been on a bus for like 16 hours. And then we got off to like have a potty stop or whatever, but there was no actual toilet. So everyone just kind of walked off into the bush into their own little spot. And I like sat down and I was weeing and I looked around and I was like, this is actually really nice. <laughs> That's my okay. favorite bathroom ever. Yeah, you really are an open book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of, lot of information, but not, not too much. So the 
something else that I know that you speak about and post about mm-hmm. is sustainability and, mm-hmm. and, and, and love and care for the planet. Why is that so important to you? Because she's our mama earth. She's the reason why we're here. Like it's, it just makes so much sense to not only protect it for ourselves, like that's, that's not selfish obviously, but it's, it's more about for future generations. Like what we have is amazing. And to think that we could take that away from other people and not even be aware of it is a horrible thought. So I think just taking care of the mother earth that takes care of us is number one. And in doing so, like you said, if you are eating, like if you're eating less packaged foods, you're one, not using as much plastic. And two, you're helping yourself and you're eating a healthier, more like varied diet anyway. So it's a win-win if you look at it that way. And then once you become conscious of it, you can't, you can't become unconscious of it. It's just there. Like all you see is plastic and, and like leftovers and stuff like that. So on a day-to-day basis, I guess, what sort of guiding principles or steps do you take to minimize your impact on mum earth? Firstly, just becoming aware of it. So whether or not you even begin to make any changes at all, step one is just becoming aware. So you'll begin to see it in certain things. Like if you don't have a keep cup or something like that, and you're using a coffee cup or two, three, four, even every day, that adds up pretty quick. And you'll start to to become like, you'll start to notice that. And you'll be like, I wonder what happens to this cup? Where does it come from? How does it get here? And then what happens to it when I'm disposing of it? Where does it go? Does it ever break down ever? Because a lot of things like plastics, they don't, or they take like super, super long. Even um, biodegradable plastics can take up to 80 years to actually biodegrade. So getting a keep cup is actually really, really worthwhile. And then just looking at the products that you use uh, and the brands that you're supporting and what they stand for, how they're creating their um, and manufacturing their products and how it gets to you. And then how you can just better everything that you do. So I have a keep cup, I have metal straws and I travel with all these coconut bowls and stuff or um, glass takeaway containers with bamboo lids, stainless steel, anything like that. Even like a, a plastic Tupperware container is better than no Tupperware container because not the reusable. Yeah, the reusable ones, not the not the Chinese yeah. ones. But yeah, anything that you can do. But I mean, even if somehow you you ended up with a Chinese one, mm-hmm. reusing that yep. is still better. You know yep. what I mean? So it's it's whatever you can do. Yeah, you know. But you're right because the first step is like working out what is my impact. You know, because that like before making any changes, and then all those changes that you reeled off then. They have such a huge effect, but it doesn't have to be done overnight. Like you can step that out. Oh, no, literally that's what I mean, like just becoming conscious of it. Just look around. Don't expect yourself to be perfect. I don't expect myself to be perfect. I don't expect anyone to be perfect. Like even at the grocery store, taking your own shopping bags is one thing, yeah? But then you go in and everything, especially the fruit and veg, it's all wrapped in plastic these days. And so just take a look at that. If you need the stuff, still buy it, sure. Dispose of it properly and then... Next time that you go, see if you can maybe go to a different store and find a way that it's not wrapped in plastic or go to the farmer's markets and then support your local farmers and the local growers in the area and you get fresher produce. It's still phenomenal. And you get to day out in the sun or, or in the rain if it's raining and, yeah, connect with people there. Yeah, and we spoke earlier about perhaps schooling systems having education around social media. so good, wouldn't you it? Know, the same thing. And plastic. plastic yeah. and the environment and you know, I can't really think of. Well, kids are where the change is at. And yeah. if it's just because they're not aware. Like if you told a kid what, that this plastic that he's holding is never going to break down and that it could go into the ocean and hurt a, a cre- like a sea creature, he wouldn't use it. Absolutely. You know what I mean? If we, want, if we want, you know, big, big long-term changes, it really starts with the kids. doesn't mean that we can't do things now, but 
kids while they're impressionable, teaching them. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to teach a kid to. Kids just love knowledge. Doesn't matter what you're teaching them. It's beautiful just to teach kids anything, but especially if it's going to help them and future generations to come. Tell me what's next on your travel list or, Mm. you know, what are some, some sort of experiences perhaps that you haven't had that you would, you would like to tick off one day. I want to go bungee jumping. Okay. I love adrenaline. Whereabouts? So, is there a particular place, New Zealand or? I mean, New Zealand's anywhere. beautiful, but it's a bit cold <laughs> for a beach bunny. Anywhere. Yeah. Anything. Like I've gone skydiving a couple of times and it doesn't really even exhilarate me at all. Really? Yeah. Gosh. And so I want to find something that I can actually get. Like roller coasters, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> but it doesn't okay, really. So bungee. Well, I, you know, I don't know if I could do bungee. I skydived twice. Mm-hmm. I feel like because bungee jumping, the, the the ground's so close and it's coming at you so quickly. I find that a lot more terrifying than skydiving. Just but like, you haven't done it. You never I, know. Yeah, I, I will do it one day. I'd have to go backwards. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So like, yeah, yeah. Just for more thrill or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, first time I did skydiving, I was twenty in South America, and. The it was the plane going up. I swear the pilot, he was like fifteen years old. That was scarier than jumping out. I thought this plane was going to go down. So it was it was an experience. So you went like you were stoked to get out. You're I was like, stoked to get out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the the greatest of skydiving centers in terms of what it looked like. So it's a bit sketchy. I was a little scared, but beautiful view on the way down, though. I bet incredible view. Where was the second time? Second time was in Byron Bay. So oh, was, even more beautiful. Yeah, that was incredible as well. I did that for a friend's birthday. And now I've got another friend, Jack, actually, Deadly Ninja Warrior, one of, the, one of my friends from around Bondi. He has started jumping solo. My brother's certified to jump he solo. Yeah. yeah. So has he tried to rope you into doing that? With him? Or to, to learn how to do it solo? Nah, I mean, I would. I just don't have the patience. Yeah. Like there's, a, and there's so much maths involved and like, I can't even be bothered to count at all, let alone to figure <laughs> out where, like to navigate where you have to be. Well, Sienna, it's been an absolute delight having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing so openly and just being such a, a great example of, of someone using social media in such a, a positive manner. If anyone that isn't already connected with you, how can they how can they get in touch? Where where can they find you? Uh Instagram is Sianna Elise. It's super hard to spell. I apologize, guys. It's S-J-A-N-A-E-L-I-S-E. And then YouTube as well um, is Sianna Earp. S-J-A-N-A-E-A-R-P. All right. Good timing because Yonki and Giuseppe look like they're ready to go for a walk. Now, when we were in LA, you mentioned something quite funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> about sausage dogs and something that you wanted to know if it was true or not. Do you want to share what that was? I've always, I've had these um, shower epiphanies ever since I was little. I just have like really profound thoughts happening in the shower. And one of them, I opened up a show with you. It's one that I had ages ago and I've never actually found out what the answer to it is, but it's a question. And it would be, what would happen if a sausage dog walked over a speed bump? Because I just like, they're so long, but their bellies are so low that I would like, I see it jumping over and its front legs would get over and then its belly would kind of get stuck and then it would kind of like seesaw on top, on top, of, the, on top of the speed bump. Well, I'm not sure if it's something that I've tested before, but I will. But it doesn't mean you can't yes, test it. Yes, I'll make sure in the next in the next week or so. You better. I'm going to hold you that. I promise. Not, I'm not just going to test it on 
on one speed bump. I'm going to find a few because, you know, Ooh, some, different are, sizes, some are different longer, some are longer yep. and slower incline and some are a bit sharper. Yep. Um, and also with both dogs because Gnocchi has a, a bit bit more of a belly, so he's probably more <laughs> likely to scrape on the way through. Um, it's but, happy fan, isn't yeah, it, Gnocchi? Yeah, he's a good boy. So, a bit okay. too much Gnocchi for Gnocchi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, actually, on that, how's this for a coincidence? My dog's names are Gnocchi and Giuseppe. So, what is Giuseppe? Giuseppe is that's his name, right? It's, it's no, but what's it? After? It's a very popular name in Italy. Both, oh, okay. And, and and I'm working with the Italian theme here. Oh, yeah, yep. So, Giuseppe is often shortened in Italy to Peppi. Uh huh. Peppi, right? So, how's this for a coincidence, right? And this uh-huh. is not a plug, but it's going to sound like one. Hashtag no promo. A restaurant in Bondi has opened up. It's vegan gnocchi. Bar. It's a vegan gnocchi bar. Called Giuseppe. Called Peppies. Oh. <laughs> and the website. I wonder whether they were inspired the by The website is giuseppeandgnocchi.com or something like that. Giuseppe and Gnocchi are in the website. It's so if you, if you walk in there with these dogs and you don't get free meals, there's something wrong. Oh, if you're listening, I should be getting free meals for life. And I would like that too, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say no to pasta. <laughs> All right, let's 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 wrap it up here. Time's, time for you to teach me a few more yoga moves. Yes. Hey, friends, Simon here. There we go. Some really great learnings from Siana there. And I'll let you know on Instagram how I go with my sausage dogs over the speed bump. If you enjoyed today's episode or have any questions, Sianna and I would love to hear from you. Shoot us a DM or upload a post to your story and tag us. In the coming weeks, I have some really, really interesting episodes for you. Exchanges with the guys from Mastering Diabetes, Brian Turner on his experience with acne and diet, Dr. Esselstein, Rip Esselstein, Dr. B again, and a whole lot more. I really look forward to bringing those to your earbuds. Also, if you haven't yet and have a spare minute, I would be so grateful if you could leave a quick review for the show on iTunes. It really only takes about two minutes. Thanks, friends. Wherever you are, whatever you're up to, have a great week. And I'll catch you in the next episode.